Please be seated as we pray together. Father, as the song says, we come with nothing. Nothing in our hands we bring, only to your cross we cling. We are empty-handed before you. And yet we know you say to us, blessed are the poor in spirit, the empty-handed, the beggars, for ours is the kingdom of heaven. And so we come to, to offer nothing but our gratitude, nothing but our praise, empty-handed, and to receive everything, to receive the kingdom as heirs, heirs to your throne, to your kingdom. You say in your word that blessed is the one who endures for he will sit with me on my throne in the kingdom. What other king shares his throne with his subjects? You're not like any, any other king. So I pray, Lord, that we can fix our eyes on you and see you more clearly. And may then, in turn, we see who we are, who you created us to be more clearly as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, first of all, I just want to thank, thank those of you who prayed for us yesterday. If you, if you got the all-church email, I'd asked for prayer for our uh, board staff retreat. It's the first time we've done, uh, we've done that, and it was wonderful. We, uh, we're doing work to try to, to integrate the leadership. You know, the board really represents the church as a whole. The elders and the board represent the church as a whole. They're the people that you guys have elected to be uh, the, the lay leadership of the church. And they're my boss, essentially. And then there's the staff, the people that, that I've hired, the team that I've built. And, and we've been working hard to, to bring these two teams together and to function as one team. And so our district superintendent, Monty Wright and Amy Wright, uh, his wife, they led a, a retreat for us um, this, uh, just yesterday, and, and I asked for prayer for it, that God would uh, use this time to help, to help focus our vision over the next few years and to distill our values um, as well. So you'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks, but I wanted to just, uh, I just wanted to share one thing in particular from the retreat, and it came out of an exercise that Amy had us do, and um, uh, it, it was an exercise where we were supposed to uh, imagine walking into this building in three years from now with a reporter and to make a list of all the things that we would tell her about um, as we're, I don't know why it's a her, just in my mind it is, but we would tell her about as we are walking through the building. Well, I did the exercise wrong. Uh, I didn't make a list. I, I missed the instructions. And so what I want to share, though, is what I saw as I went through, because that's what, I was just imagining what I would see. And, and there was a sense in which what I saw really didn't need any words added to it, because it was self-evident. But but it was a vision of, of this church filled with life. And I, we started at the, the, um, the youth room where Youth for Christ meets. And as we approached the, the building, I saw in the playground there were 
tons of kids, as you would see if you go there any weekday, the wonders of learning kids. So kids playing in the playground. And in, toward the youth room, youth room there was actually a, a big cookout happening. And there was food everywhere, and there were people coming in from the streets, and they were being fed. And I even saw people being brought in on stretchers into this room. And then we, we walked upstairs into the lobby, and there was a coffee shop. <laughs> there, everybody was drinking coffee. Amen to that, right? And people were sitting across the table together with smiles on their face, and there was joy, and, the, and, and there was open doors. It was summer, the doors were open, and there was an openness to this place. All were welcome. And then the, we walked into the sanctuary, and right at the front, right here, there was a bride and a groom. There was a bride and a groom. And the beautiful thing about it is that the pews were filled Actually, the focal point was what I saw in the pews. It was families, and they were like, they were like huddled together, almost, almost like they were there for, for each other, not just for this wedding. And, and, and stepping away from that vision, like I said, I didn't really have any bullet points, but I saw this beautiful picture of what this place could be, what it is becoming, I even believe. And it, and it, it starts even with, with people being brought in on stretchers. I didn't see the people on stretchers as necessarily different from the people I saw huddled together with families. I saw as a, as a whole life transformation that you come in here as sick and needy, empty-handed, beggars and broken. And this would be a place where true life transformation would happen, where Broken lives and broken relationships got put back together, where families reconciled, where relationships were restored, where people would, would come to the great wedding feast and as become the bride of Christ, they meet their bridegroom and Jesus, and, and from that, relationships and lives and, and families would be restored and healed and transformed. That's the vision. That's a beautiful vision, isn't it? And you know that. The only ones who, who can help realize that vision is us. And there's no reason that we can't. It's just a matter of us all deciding, let's move toward that, whatever it looks like in all its particulars. It's just all of us saying, I want to be part of something like that. Don't you want to be part of something like that? Because the only ones who can get in the way of that also is us. The enemy of our soul can't get in the way of it. The devil himself, all hell can't get in the way of it because all that would be is, is follow, us following the one who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? The one, the one who already has victory over the enemy of our soul. The one about whom the, God's word says, no weapon formed against us will prosper. No one can get in the way of it, in other words. But us. But us. But I don't, see us, I don't see us getting in the way of that vision. I see us as moving toward that vision. You know, I've, this is the beginning of my seventh year here, and it's amazing to see that this is still that God-loving, people-welcoming church that I came into all those years ago. But God has changed us and has grown us and has strengthened us. And I'm excited about 
what it looks like over these next three years, five years, the next seven years. And uh, I, just, I just want you to know I'm thankful to be a part of this community. So, uh, now, um, the, like I said, the, the, only, the only ones who can really help realize that vision is us, and we're the ones, only ones who can get in the way of it. But I want, I want to be quick to say the way that vision is going to get realized is not by everyone committing to serve the church. It will happen when everyone begins to commit to listen to Jesus. It's not about us, it's about him. So turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And that's the lesson I think that we will see in the text today. You know, we serve one master. Our service to, to others is really directed to one master, one Lord. And we're not here calling you guys to serve the church in any, in any sense. We're, calling, we're here calling you to serve Jesus and, and we're just trying to serve him together. It just turns out that, that Jesus, in serving him and obeying him, Jesus has an agenda. And he wants to build a, a, a community. He wants to build an extended family across the globe. So that a lot of times that will lead to service within the church. It will always lead to service of people in some sense. But it's all in ultimate service to our master. We have an audience of one. Your life is lived before the living God. In him alone will you answer to with what you do with your life. And so I want to be clear that, that, that if as we think about vision in these, these coming weeks and months, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus, and not on us, not on Crossroads Neighborhood Church, but on him. And so uh, if you'll read with me a shorter text uh, beginning in, in verse 38 says this, <clears throat> now as they went on their way, so Jesus and the disciples went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion or the better part would be a wooden translation. Mary has chosen the better part which will not be taken from her. This is the word of God. Now, this is, uh, this is one of those stories that has, it has layers of meaning. Layers of meaning and, and therefore layers of the implications that follow from, the, from those meanings. And, and you can look at it through these different lenses, uh, through different lenses to get 
to different layers. So I, I thought a helpful way to, to look at this in, in its different dimensions would be to notice the contrast in the story itself and then in the, the story in its context. So a, a simple way, we're going to talk about something better than serving, by the way. Um, so a, a, a way to, to frame this up for you would be to, to think about there's three contrasts that, that this will kind of structure the, the sermon that we'll look at. Mary versus, or sorry, Martha versus the lawyer, which is the story from last week about the Good Samaritan. Uh, Mary versus Martha, which is the obvious. And then Jesus versus the rabbis, okay? So, so again, uh, so first we're looking at, at Mary versus, or Martha versus the lawyer. So the first, first thing to note is, is this story in its context. Remember the story that we read last week. It was the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and that story began with the question, remember, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in that story and the question, we were given a kind of good example or positive example and negative example. So good example, bad example. The bad example of the lawyer because his motives were exposed. He wanted to test Jesus and justify himself, if you remember. And then the positive, positive example, the scandalous example of the Samaritan, which Jesus uh, demonstrated in the parable. Well, this story isn't so much a kind of good versus bad uh, example in Mary versus Martha. It is good versus better, okay? So let's not quickly throw Martha under the bus, all right? Okay, um, so Jesus said it himself, Mary has chosen the better part. It's not that, it wasn't one of good versus bad, it was one of, it's, it, it's an issue of priority, which we'll get to. But I want you to notice that these two stories, this story is only found in the Gospel of Luke, and it's important that you see it right after the story of the Good Samaritan, because it holds together two fundamental elements by which the kingdom of God advances through this world, through word and action, through a declaration of the kingdom and the demonstration of the kingdom. So remember what I said last, what we saw last week. The lawyer uh, asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him what he must do. Essentially, love your neighbor and become a neighbor to those who need one. You remember that? And at the end of each major paragraph in that in that par in the the section it says he says do this he says to him you know love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength love your neighbor as yourself and jesus says do this and you will live and then he gives the example of the good samaritan and he says now you go and do likewise so in other words follow if you want jesus answer to the lawyer it's follow the example of the samaritan and in this story, Jesus is asked another, you might say, leading question, okay? And it's when, remember, Martha, distracted with much serving, she goes up to Jesus, she says, Lord, do you not care? She's not really looking for an answer, is she? She's making a statement. Do you not care that my sister has left me alone? And then Jesus, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. 
But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. So Jesus' word to Martha, which is almost harder to hear than for the lawyer to follow the example of the Samaritan. Follow the example of your little, little sister, <laughs> which is brutal, right? So, so for the lawyer, though, it's go and do, right? For Martha, it's listen and learn. It's Martha, Martha just have a seat. Sit down. Take a break. Take a breather. Take a deep breath, you know. You are anxious and troubled about many things. So, so the, the lesson then from this first layer, I think you can understand within the broader theme throughout the, the gospel as a whole. And, and by the way, this idea of what, what is it that Mary was doing, we'll get more into this. She was, it's not that she was just resting, not just that she was sitting, she was learning from Jesus. And the reason why you learn from Jesus is if ultimately so that you have something to say about Jesus. It's not only for that. But you can't say anything about Jesus unless Jesus informs what you're saying, right? You don't know him if you don't listen to him. And so this holds together these two fundamental elements about how the, the kingdom advances in this world and the gospel advances through this world. Namely this, the mission of God advances through the declaration and the demonstration, the proclamation and the practice of the kingdom of God. It's a doing and saying. It, it, it's, it's word and deed. And so the, 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 it's exactly what you see. When the moment Jesus' ministry begins, you see this pattern begin all throughout the gospel. Matthew chapter 4 says Jesus was going around, going throughout Galilee, proclaiming or declaring that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then demonstrating it, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, cleansing lepers, and so on. And the moment he anointed his disciples for the same ministry he was doing, as it says in, in Luke chapter 9, it says that he, he, called his, he called the 12 to himself and it says he anointed them and gave them authority over demons and diseases and he sent them out to declare the kingdom of God and to heal. It was to declare and to demonstrate the reality of the kingdom of God, the evidence of the kingdom of God. The evidence of the kingdom of God, in other words, has to be proclaimed from your mouth and demonstrated with your life. It has to be practiced. Your life is a very evidence of the kingdom of God breaking into this world. Every time you say, I'm sorry, every time you say, I forgive, in Jesus' name, it's evidence that God's kingdom is breaking in. Right? Isn't that what the Lord's Prayer says? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. You see, there's an embodiment of the kingdom. That your very life becomes a kind of parable of Jesus. And over time, that itself becomes a parable of the kingdom. Evidence that the kingdom really is breaking in through your obedience to the Lord of that kingdom. To the king of that kingdom. People will see you living differently. And then they'll say, what is this difference? And you speak it. Jesus is the difference. And that's why we can't have, we give preference to one over the other. To either word or deed. Like that, that stupid saying that always gets attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Which he did not say, by the way. 
You've heard it. Preach the gospel at all times and use words only when necessary. Rubbish. You can't, you can't do that. It's, it's arrogant to think that the world needs no love greater than your own. Right? That people just need your demonstration of love and not the, the truth of, of God's love revealed in Jesus Christ. Your demonstration of love is supposed to be a signpost that points to the greater love. No love has, no greater love has any man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. The world needs to hear that. They need to hear that there's a God who sent his son to die for them as a ransom for them. That's great love. That changes lives forever. You handing a cup of cold water in Jesus' name is evidence of that, but that's not where it ends. That's small. That's paltry. That's that, that is nothing if, it's, if, it's, if it is an end in itself. And it's arrogant to think that the world just needs witness to my love and my works. My love and my works are simply intended to witness to God's love in the work of Jesus Christ that saves the world. And that, you can't do that without words. It's word and deed. So the lesson from Martha and the lawyer is declaration without demonstration is hypocrisy. Don't think that you can just preach the good news and then, you know, to hell with the world if they believe it or not, right? We, they, we are called to embody this message. But, it, but so declaration without demonstration is hypocrisy and demonstration without declaration is humanism. We have to hold the two together. The world needs our words and our work, our words and our deeds, so, you follow? Okay, good. Let's move on then. Something better than serving. Uh, so, our declaration begins not simply then with, with learning about the kingdom, but listening to the king. So, this is what brings us to, to the examples of Mary versus Martha. Mary and Martha. So, um, now, I think even by modern standards, we can, we can all admit Without the Marthas of this world, nothing would ever get done, would they? <laughs> At least it seems that way. Uh, I mean, as a pastor in particular, I mean, we, how, I don't know how often we recruit you for children's ministry work or work at the tech booth or children's ministry work. Did I say that? By the way, if you want to sign up for children's ministry, you can, you can do that at the lobby. So as a pastor, there, there's nothing... Nothing more than I love than pe seeing people empowered to serve in the church. I love seeing that. But, but even more than that, I want everyone, and truly there's nothing more than I want, than for everyone to be brought to the feet of Jesus. To come to know him as Savior and as Lord in worship, in prayer, in devotion. You know, we got fellowship feast today. And, and so Martha's got work to do, Right? It's, work, has to be, work has to be done. Someone's got to serve the children to raise the next generation of disciples. Someone's got to volunteer on the prayer team to help lead people to the feet of Jesus, right? So, so again, let's not be so hard on Martha. Because without Martha, I mean, the church would probably be caving in by now. So, so, but again, recognize it, this isn't a good versus bad example. It's about good versus bad better or more specific more specifically 
it's not about Mary or Martha. It's about Mary before Martha. It's about priority. Your service, your service has to go through this posture of sitting at the feet of Jesus. Lest it become service to other people and not service to him. Right? And so, so Mary has chosen the better part in that sense. It's about recognizing that none of us are called, like I said, be clear about this. None of you are called to serve the church in the proper sense of that term. As in, who's your master? You have one master. But we are all called to serve Jesus. And serving Jesus will lead you into the service of people, but only in response to his commands, not in response to their demands. Because what happens over time if you're constantly living for the demands of people is you will start to resent them. Like Martha resents everyone in this seat. She resents her sister, clearly, and it sure sounds like she's resenting Jesus with that question, doesn't it? Don't you care? Right? She doesn't care, but you? And so, so Martha has, has begun <laughs> resenting everyone, and, and she has a point, you know, especially in that culture where, frankly, it was the women's job for if, if people were coming into the house, it was their job to, to according to those customs, at least, to, to prepare the meal and to basically be in the kitchen, not in the living room with the men talking theology, okay? And that'll become important as, this, as we get to the next point. But, but I want you, before that, I want you to just consider just a broader point about hospitality. About, and hospitality, don't think of it in just a, having people over to your house. Hospitality in the sense of making room for people in your life, inviting people into your life, into your space to share your presence. Consider then that what Martha's, what this text says, not about Martha's hospitality, but about Martha's presence. And when you live your life in service to everyone's demands on you, what kind of presence that leads to? It says three things explicitly about it. First of all, Luke says that she was distracted in all her serving. Notice it doesn't say that she was busy in all her serving. It says that she was distracted in all her serving. Can I just make a suggestion? Can we stop wearing busyness as a badge of honor? Right? Because that's what it is. How have you been? Oh, I've just been so busy. Okay, we get it. You're busy. You're an American. We get it. Find something else to say. In fact, next, <laughs> I do it too. This is to us. Come on. Yeah, that's right. Give us all a hand because we're all guilty, aren't we? In fact, next time someone asks you how you're doing and you're tempted to say, oh, I've been really busy, tell the truth and say, oh, I've just been really distracted lately. And if, if you want proof of it, just look at the, the, the screen time report on my iPhone. That's how busy I've been, Right? I mean, we're not planting our own stinking corn, you know, and, and like, you know, this is the 21st century. If we're busy, it's because we've made ourselves busy. And why do we do that? It's because we're, it's not an external busyness, it's an internal distraction. It's what T.S. Eliot describes, we're distracting ourselves from distraction by distraction. 
It's, it's something we're running from within ourselves. Not these great demands that really depend on us because the world will just cave in without us. Right? And so, and so uh, uh, the demands, I don't think the demands of the day really consume us with busyness. I think it's the distractions of our soul that drive us to busyness. So let's be honest. Let's be honest about that and follow Mary's example then in that sense. That one thing is necessary. One thing. You see, and that led, you know, this distractedness of soul led to the two things Jesus says to Mary, or to Martha. He says, Martha, Martha. And by the way, that's not a scolding term. That's a term of endearment. It's the way God spoke to Abraham. That when you see these two names, the proper names side by side, it's an endearing way of speaking to someone in Scripture. It's how God spoke to Abraham, uh, to Moses, to David, and, uh, there was, and to Jacob in the Old Testament. It's a calling to himself. It's, it's Martha. No, no, Martha. It's like, look me, look me in the eye. Come here for a minute. I want you to come into my presence. Because in my presence, you'll start to see what's going on in your presence. You see? Come here, Martha, he's saying. And he says to her, don't you see, you are, you're, you're anxious and troubled about many things. The word anxious in this text it literally means to care about. It's not a positive, it's, or sorry, it's not a negative term. It's not the way we think of anxiety. It's, the problem is not that she cared about something. It's that she cared about too many things. She's pulled in too many directions. So to be, and, and the, the word distraction actually literally comes from a metaphor, the one that Luke uses, that she was distracted about many things. It literally refers to being pulled it typically refers to multiple people being pulled away from some reference point. It's used in battle language a lot. But, but he's using it to refer to Martha, saying that she was distracted. She was pulled in too many directions. And why? Because Jesus says, you care about too many things. You care about so many things that you're, you're, it's like you've got heartstrings pulled all over the world. And that will just fragment you. That will quarter you, right? That will, that will break you up and split you apart. If, you are, if you're so worried about so many things, and typically what you're worried about is the demands of so many people. People don't make good masters. Jesus is the only master who exists to set his people free. Every other master exists to enslave people. Don't live for the demands of people. They will pull you apart, and they don't care the damage it does to you. One thing is necessary. Care about this one thing, the one, the one person who cares about you most, your maker, the one who made your, who knit you together and wants to keep you together and put you back together, you see. Care about him and what he thinks. And that means you'll probably disappoint others and all their demands on you. That's okay. They're not your maker. They're not your judge. It doesn't matter what they think. It matters what he thinks. Maybe what your wife thinks, but no one else, okay? <laughs> and so Jesus says, all those things you care about, they just bring more trouble to your soul. You're worried and troubled. You're anxious and troubled about many things. And, and so the end of all your serving and hospitableness leads to what I'm reading into this, but I think it's obvious. She's resentful. 
I mean, are you a resentful person? Is that something you carry with you? It may be for, for all of the above reasons, right? And Jesus wants, wants to set you free from that. So before you hear me calling you to serve or volunteer, just know, if, that's, if you hear that as one more demand from one other person, we don't ever want you to volunteer here. We want you to come here and sit at the feet of Jesus. But if, you don't want, if you're not called to serve by him, you are free. Please don't hear anything else from me. We want people to serve in freedom because that's the only way you're going to serve in joy. We don't need resentful service in the church. That pushes people away. I mean, have you ever gone to someone's house and, and it, it just felt like the per, your host was distracted and anxious and troubled and resentful? Have you ever been to a house like that? Yeah, you probably have, haven't you? You can at least imagine it, right? That someone invites you in and they're worried about everything but you, right? And, or, or maybe they're, they're even just resentful because all the trouble they had to go through to get ready for you. I slept three hours last night preparing this dinner for you, you know. Thanks for inviting me over. <laughs> you see, Christ-centered hospitality, right, which is what this is supernatural fragrance of Christ that should be evident in the church, that, that God wants to be evident in the church. Not should, but that God wants to be evident in the church. Christ-centered hospitality begins with Christ-centered peace in your life. Because it's about his presence. His coming into a house where whether the work's getting done or not, it feels like we're all just see, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Right? So, so the people getting ready for the fellowship feast right now, the, the people who are serving in the church regularly, one of the things I love about this church is it doesn't feel, it, it doesn't feel like they're resentful or distracted or busy. They're focused. They, are, they have put Christ as their priority. Right? And, and that's why people do feel welcome when they come into this place. But when people describe feeling welcome, they're talking about a certain presence, right? And that's the presence of Christ. And so we don't want to get in the way of that. So, um, so again, not Mary or Martha, but Mary before Martha. So what's the lesson? Listen before serving. When, when I was in second grade, I had a second grade teacher who may as well have been a drill sergeant named Ms. Stout. Ms. Yes, she was like her name sounds. Ms. Stout. And uh, believe it or not, I apparently had a problem with being impulsive. Um, now, I don't remember ever being impulsive, but, but what I do remember is a giant necklace that Ms. Stout made me wear on multiple occasions. It looked something like this, and it said Think before you act. I remember sitting at the lunch table with this big stupid necklace in, in a, a, what do you call it, the cellophane? Laminated, big piece of, you know, that yellow paper. Think before you act. Well, we're not going to make anybody wear that necklace. But the, 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 the point here and the lesson here is listen before you serve. Okay? Listen before you serve. Because if, if you don't, if your, if your service to others doesn't begin by listening to Jesus, you're just listening to others, right? You really do need to be freed from the demands of people, 
and from the church. Because all, all that all you will do is, first of all, you'll never live up to everyone else's demands. And you will always feel like they will always make you know that you're a disappointment to them. And you will always feel guilty living under the demands of others. You need to be free of that. Just lay that down. You're invited. I mean, that's the chains are, you're invited to just bring your chains up to Jesus and lay them down. And say, I just want to serve you. You're a good master. You, you want to set me free. And so, how do you listen to Jesus? I mean, it's so simple. It's through his word and through prayer. Right? I mean, every sermon really could just lead to one application. Go to his word and go to prayer. Because it's about the only way we know God through his word and his spirit. Right? And, and so, we're invited to pray all times in the spirit, Paul says in Ephesians so we, we can come and sit under his word and, and to sit in prayer. If you love me, you will obey my commands. How do you love Jesus? Obey his commands. How do you know what his commands are? His commands are in his word, right? And, and his word is not dead like a, words in a history book. They're living because he's present. It's, he, it's not like reading a biography of someone who isn't there. It's like be, reading a biography of the person sitting next to you because he's always sitting next to you. And you read, you know, love your enemies, Jesus. You really say that? Yeah, he said that, right? So, so go to his word. If you love me, obey my commands, and, and I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. See, you see, if his word abides in you, it actually shapes the way you pray. If you listen for him, he, he will lead you to pray for not only for yourself, but also to others. So listen before you serve. Okay, last, last one. Um, <clears throat> Jesus and the rabbis. Okay. Now, it is, it's important to recognize, like I said, this is not just about work versus rest or work versus worship. It says specifically, verse 38, that Mary sat at the Lord's feet li and listened to his teaching. The reason this is so scandalous, frankly, is because this is not a story about Matthew and Mark, for example. It's a story about Mary and Martha. You know the difference between those two couplings of people? What? They're women. Right. Now let me give you a, a sense of the, what a typical rabbi was like at the time. Well, first of all, just know, sitting at someone's feet and listening to them is the posture of a disciple. And disciples are people who learn from their rabbis. This is, this is typical of Jewish culture. So when Paul says, for example, I'm a Jew born of Tarsus, Cilicia, but brought up in, the, in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. According to the strict manner and the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So to sit at someone's feet and to be educated is to be someone's disciple. And what Mary was doing was not just being the contemplative one versus the busy one. She was taking her place at the feet of Jesus, and it was a place where only men were allowed in that culture. And it's a first century reader that would have been the first thing he noticed about this story. So the problem with, with her sitting at Jesus, and this is probably what Martha was even peeved about. 
because she saw Mary disrupting the social conventions. And Jesus, aren't you going to do anything about this? Right? It wasn't just about her serving alone. It's that women were not allowed to, to be disciples of any rabbi. Okay? Much less one who claimed to be the Messiah of the, the kingdom. And, and women, women were not even allowed to be formally educated by men. Uh, and even their own fathers. In fact, this is Rabbi Eleazar. This is in 80 AD to give you a sense of the time. If any man gives his daughter, so he's talking about just father-daughter relationships. If any man gives his daughter an education in the law, it is as though he taught her lechery. You know what that is? It's like an excessive lustfulness. And he, he, this is suggesting that, that if a man teaches his own daughter, the law of God, he may as well teach her to be a prostitute. They didn't want women to be educated. They get educated, they might start getting opinions. And that's what men don't want, women have an opinion. In fact, uh, there was one rabbinical tradition that had a morning liturgy of gratitude for Jewish men to pray. Thank God I'm not a Gentile. Thank God I'm not an ignorant man. And thank God I'm not a woman. And you could actually see the division, okay, in, in the temple. And God's, te- okay, the temple is a place they believe God's presence could be found. And the outer courtyard way out here was for Gentiles. This is where they bought, bought and sold stuff for, for, uh, with, with people who were not Jewish. But the first level of the temple. That's the court of women. So, so women were only allowed. So this is not just about a hierarchy, men above women. This is about a separation that was just intuitively known. If you were a woman in first century Palestine, a Jewish woman, you were further away from God's presence than anyone else, than, than, than the men of your culture. And so they had physically represented that in their architecture. This is, by the way, Herod's temple, not the one God designed. Okay? Just keep that in mind. And then on the inside, there's the the court of priests, and you had to be a man. And and then the Holy of Holies, the high priest could only go once a year. And Jesus comes into this world of social convention and starts tearing down all the barriers. Because he was the temple. He was the place where God's presence could be found. And it wasn't just about rabbi, disciple. It's about all people coming into the presence of God. Yes, this woman at the feet of Jesus because she's no further than God than any other man. And Jesus represented that in that moment. It was an embrace in a tearing down of the walls, the dividing walls of hostility that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, referencing the temple. The curtain of the temple is torn in half, meaning there's no separation between us and God. But all those other walls of social convention are being broken down because in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor free, male nor female, slave nor free. All are one in Christ Jesus. And so... And so why, so why do you think that, you know, like this quote, why were they trying to keep women from being educated? It's because, I suppose, not only they get opinion. If you start teaching them God's law, they'll probably start to have a, an opinion about the way men constantly defy God's law <laughs> throughout history. 
And, and who knows, you start teaching women and they might start teaching others. And, and that's the, because listen, that's the only reason a rabbi would have a disciple. A disciple is a very specific role. It's a specific vocation. Now, I want you to get a hold of that. You see, disciples, were, it's not just like, it's not an, it is someone that you would think of as going to seminary. Now, why that's so scandalous is that every follower of Jesus, every Christian is referred to as a disciple. Do you see what that suggests? That every Christian has a role and an opportunity and an invitation and an opening to speak on behalf of God and God's word. Male, female, Jew, Greek, or otherwise. And so, and so these, what, what was happening in this moment was just a tearing down of the social conventions of that time. This whole movement, you see, this was the beginning of a movement of all the followers of Jesus would be called disciples of this rabbi where everyone was empowered to communicate the gospel, everyone empowered to share the good news of their Lord and Savior with others, yes, including women. I, oh, it's later than I thought. I'll just tell you, okay, two quick stories, then we'll get out of here. I, uh, someone sent me a sermon, or uh, actually a teaching on this passage by, I won't name names, it's the leader of this Ligonier ministry, an evangelical teacher uh, who recently died. I'm giving you hints. And, oh, sorry. Maybe that's God. Maybe God's saying no. Okay. Okay. No. Uh, and his example, he, he was making the point that, you know, theology comes before practice. It's a point I kind of made earlier. You listen to Jesus before you serve. But in illustrating the point, he gave an example of how when they started this Ligonier ministry, it was like this kind of camp out place where a bunch of people went and the women would serve the men and the men after eating would sit and talk theology. And he told a story of one time a woman came to him and said, hey, why can't we be part of the conversation? And this teacher said, oh, and I just had to point her to the story of Mary and Martha to point out that, you know, theology comes before service. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, it's because it doesn't make sense. Okay? The whole point he was making was that the men were embodying the sitting at the feet of Jesus. By the way, if that's the analog, you just, became, you just misgendered yourself. Okay, guys? Because the woman in this story is sitting at the feet of Jesus talking theology, learning from the master. And what he was doing was using this very parable to prop back up that social convention and to say, get your butt back in the kitchen. You see, that is what I would call, what Paul calls, when God's wrath is revealed, that is a suppression of the truth. That is when you are so hell-bent on excluding a class, in this case women, from a particular role that you cannot hear God speak through his own word. That's a suppression of truth. And so as someone who, like Timothy, you know, remember Paul writes to Timothy to remember the lessons you learned from your mother Eunice, your grandmother Lo Lois. I grew up listening to my grandmother preach and teach. 
I, my grandfather was a pastor, but I have distinct memories of my grandmother standing up in the church and proclaiming the gospel. And week after week, I have a vivid image of my grandfather sitting, my grandmother at one side of the table, my grandfather at the other side of the table, and my grandmother teaching the family and family devotions, and my grandfather sitting under my grandmother's teaching. And why did he do that? It was not an effort at affirmative action. He did it because my grandmother was a student of God's word and she was called to preach and teach. That's why he did it. So what's the last lesson then? The last lesson is the kingdom of God advances powerfully only when both men and women are fully empowered to do what Jesus calls them to do together. And so, whatever that is, whatever you're called to, this church will never get in the way of that calling. We want to help you identify your calling. We want to empower you in that calling. And we want to release you into it. And, and you're not going to do it in demands of us. You're going to do it freely as you follow Jesus. And so that leads to, oh honey, would you bring me that uh, communion? Leads to our our celebration, our, our celebration of communion before we have our fellowship feast. So let this be, it's not an appetizer, that would be wrong to call it that. But let this be the beginning of the feast. We want to welcome everyone into the feast. And, uh, and, and it's a good transition to this because we are reminded that all disciples of Jesus, okay, are welcome to the table of the Lord. Doesn't matter race, gender, or otherwise. Everyone who confesses Jesus as their Lord, believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, are welcome to the table. Maybe you've never taken communion, okay? Communion is just bread and wine, in this case grape juice, and it represents the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus for you. The invitation into relationship with Jesus is believing that he died for your sins and God raised him from the dead. So maybe you've never taken this. And there's nothing magical. This is not superstition. There's nothing magical about this. It is an exercise of faith, a demonstration of faith, recognizing that this gospel I've heard about a God who sent his son to die for me, I want to respond in faith. Well, this could be your first response of faith. Because as Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a visible demonstration of the gospel. So if you want to respond in faith, I would invite you to take the elements with us. And remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take this and eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it and gave thanks and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The blood that was poured out for, for the sins of many, to, for the forgiveness of sins. He said, as often as you do this, drink it in remembrance of me. Lord of the church, we come to your table as one. United together by your spirit. And I ask for everyone in here for a releasing, a breaking of chains, 
First, that you would release us from the demands of other people. Because that doesn't even make us better people when we live for the demands of other people. We want to live for your commands. And we know that's the only way that we're transformed to be the people you want us to be, to do the things you want us to do. So I pray for freedom from people who are constantly in bondage to living up to the demands of others. Release them in Jesus' name. And I pray, Lord, for a different kind of releasing, a releasing of of the chains that have kept people from walking in their calling, the things that kept them oppressed and suppressed. I pray for a releasing of, of those chains, those artificial, socially constructed chains, and an empowering of your spirit. We don't have an agenda here, Lord. We just want people to be free to do what you've called them to do and empowered to do the ministry you've called them to do. I give you thanks for the way that you have transformed this body and the way you are continuing to do so. And Lord, I ask for a continued outpouring of the Spirit for the empowering of your church for the glorification of Jesus in this world. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, just one more reminder that the fellowship will continue with a feast in the Generation Center, just in the lobby, from the lobby, get there. Turn left and you'll get there. And, uh, and I'll just say a prayer of thanks for our food, but as you go, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. You live for an audience of one, your life before him. You live for his commands and the demands of others. You'll be free. You'll be better than those demands can make you, too. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the food we're about to receive. We just recognize it as a continuation of this sacred feast of communion that has begun in our worship. May it spill over into the fellowship, into our conversations, into relationships. May this be that place that that you... You showed us as a staff and board a place where relationships are restored and families put back together, lives put back together. And may it be done in this this celebration of food. Thank you for taste buds. You didn't have to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.